Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Strife Sanctum Podcast. My name is Citizen Strife, and I took a week off of recording. I was away ahead, but I had a bit of a cold going on, and this is the first day I've been without it, so you might still hear some sniffles and whatnot, but I'm back doing it and staying busy, and this week's recording is about a game very old school. I've done the Breath of Fire 3 before. This week, I'm going to be talking Breath of Fire 2. Now, Breath of Fire 2 was made back in the mid-90s, I believe, 1993, 1994, 1995, somewhere around there. <clears throat> and having gone back and seen footage of 1, it's very bare bones, so to speak. Breath of Fire 2 kind of fits the similar mode. Um, obviously, 3 and 4 were the ones that everybody remembers as the good ones. Some people do like 5 to an extent. I'd say 2 kind of fits in that mode where people like it, but there are some issues. And... A lot of the things that are going on. It is an improvement over one, but it's still held back a little bit, mostly via translation um, and stuff like encounter rate. And I'll express that in a minute. But there are still some good things to be had if you dig deeper into the game. And a lot of it has to do with certain characters and what they're going through. A lot of it is internal struggles with going back home in their hometowns and what they're dealing with and feeling like outcasts in a way. The overarching story, however, has to do with, you know, obviously monsters and what what's lurking in the fear of dealing with monsters. So, as always, there's a character known as Ryu. And in this game, he's an orphan in a town, grows up, but early on there's a flashback where he's in a cave with a very, very high-level monster that you don't deal with until way late in the game, and that preys upon you, is that sense. And that fear kind of grips him for a second, and then he's back in the original town. And he's with his friend Bo, and Bo is a, a friend. The nice thing about Breath of Fire is anthropomorphic characters of different races and cultures and whatnot are, are you know, pretty obvious. Because Ryu is sort of human, sort of not. It's later found out he is of a dra draconic clan and has dragon powers. It's not as expressed straightforwardly in this one as it is in the first and the third games. In this one, it's more he was later on, it gets revealed that he has draconic blood in him. It's not as pronounced as in three. There's no gene splicing stuff. There's no, it's more like 
grip grip a power, do a ton of damage as like one turn, boom. So it's not as pronounced, and it does have an impact, but it's not. It's until you get later in the story where it really manifests. But the cool thing about Breath of Fire is that again, you can have this draconic character who looks human palling around with a dude who looks like a walking dog, essentially. So Bo is a friend. They're trying to make do in a in a in a town by doing odd jobs. They end up taking a bad one and they try to steal stuff from the mayor, I believe. And Bo gets framed for it because a thief shows up. I believe her name's Patty. She's stealing stuff and Bo gets framed for it and they have to go on the run and if they find a just a podunk place in the mountain somewhere and they have to start a new life. So for a long time, Ryu has to go it alone because Bo is on the run. So he ends up going from place to place to place. Early on, it's about finding that character making sure that Bo is not framed anymore and catching that criminal, which he eventually does. But along the way, he meets several other characters of different affiliations and stuff. And the cool thing is that everybody has different power sets, different skill sets. And much like Breath of Fire 3, where you had action commands where Ryu could slash a shrub, uh, Tipo could kick a tree... Ray could steal stuff, Gar could push blocks, you know, that sort of thing. Same thing applies, though this one is more hunting-based. So Ryu could slash stuff. And as you're walking in the overworld, think of like a Zelda 2 mechanic, where you see a thing like a small little shrub. If you go into the small little shrub, you get a little minigame where a, like a pig or a, or a deer shows up. And before they run away, you can hunt them for food items so Ryu can slash Bo can shoot um, other characters can smack all that stuff so you can do hunting and other things you can do other cool stuff with traversal mechanics and whatever with other characters as well as I'll describe later but there's a lot of overworld in-game mechanics that are kind of neat that manifest in this game that show up in later games as little tricks um, but as Ryu's going along, next character he meets is Rand, who's this gigantic, I, I don't know what you call it, a rhinoceros looking dude, hip, not hippo looking dude, but very bulky, very muscular looking guy. Cause they're in a, um, they're in a coliseum. They find out that Ryu is scheduled to face off against Cat, who is awesome. She's straightforward, straight-laced. She likes to fight. She's good at fighting. She's kind of dumb. So she's just fiery. And she's what Ray would be if Ray had a short temper. And had, like, even less intelligence. You know, but she's great. Um, and one of the more memorable characters of the game. So Cat is fighting in an arena. Ryu and Rand find out that they're trying to rig the fight so that somebody gets poisoned. They end up figuring that shit out, blow it all open. And then there's a subtle thing where this guy is talking about some god. And that's their first inclination that something good, something bigger is happening. Some sort of all-powerful being is manifesting powers in certain people. And 
you know, you kill the guy and whatever. It's it's an allusion to like the seven sins, like greed and gluttony and all that stuff. It's not super pronounced, but the idea is there's some inner workings of some god somewhere that's doing something. All the while, you have this kind of undercurrent of a dragon god as a save point, and then you've got the Saint Eva Church going around, <clears throat> you know, where you have orphanages and other places. Like, I believe the orphanage where uh, Ryu and his his old family used to be, they were under the auspices of Saint Eva as well. So you get Cat. Cat's whole thing is again she bashes things while hunting. Um. So Ryu is pretty well rounded, physical attacker. Bo is not as strong, but can do archery skills. Cat is just glass cannon. She smacks really fast, so she's agile and she hits hard, but she's very weak uh, defensively. Rand is a is a healer, which is kind of unique. This big bulky healer dude. Um, so he's physical, but he also manages to be a white mage, which again is unique because you normally think of white mages as the as the female healers of the party. Not not in this case. It's a it's a nice touch. Um, keep going, and more characters get involved. My favorite character in this game, and I've said I've hated Nina three. Think of the exact opposite with Nina two. I, I'm not going to give away too much, but suffice it to say, Nina 2 has the best story of all of the Ninas in all of the games. Um, the one that comes close is N Nina 4, Breath of Fire 4, because of the impact that it has just far-reaching later in the story. You know, she's searching for her sister in that game. So her search is something that's an undercurrent through the entire game. Um, in this one, Nina 2 has black wings. So as a child, she was given up because she is supposed to cause calamity. It's one of those oogie-boogie curses that the royal family deals with she was born with black wings they're beautiful wings they're you know purple and black wings but they're an omen of ill just tidings right so the king doesn't want to kill her but they don't want to have her around and cause unrest in the kingdom so she gets shipped off to the city where Ryu and Bo are staying and then she ends up joining the party because Ryu helps out because he's a nice guy and Nina's whole arc doesn't manifest for a while, but knowing that there's this undercurrent of unease and sacrifice and just very dour explanations of things, you she has a very striking look. Because in the in the third game, she was very young, very cutesy, very naive, and very kind of dumb. In this one, it's very dour and somber, but she, you know, has a chip on her shoulder and she's fighting to, you know, stem the tide, basically. And it's still a nice thing. She's trying to make the best of a bad situation. So she joins the party and she fits the typical role that she would normally do, the mob-killing 
magic user. She does that very well in this game as well. She's got all the spells that you'd think she would have, all the elemental, just destructive spells. And I've liked Nina just pure look standpoint, pure story standpoint, the things that happen to her. Because the nice thing about this game is they take everybody, you know, it's kind of like how Final Fantasy VII did their character arcs or Final Fantasy VI in a way where they would give you bits and pieces, but then they'd have their own, like, here's their story. Go to their hometown, here's their story. Same thing here. Nina would have that. Like, they'd have their own section. It's like an episode of an anime where you get their backstory and you do it in a, in a, in a dungeon sort of sense. Nina gets hers way later, and it ends up being one of these crazy moments that you remember one of the few things that I think of this game is Nina's story playing out in the background until later when it matters. Because again, Ryu is a silent protagonist. He doesn't, he, they, the story matters to an extent, but cats nah. doesn't show up until later, but she doesn't have a lot of agency in plot to an extent. Nina doesn't, but her, undercurrent again of sacrifice and trying to stem the tide despite all the issues that's kind of the undercurrent of the game which is the evil lurking around and it's balanced out by some characters who don't matter as much um so next one like rand he his manifests later as well um Bo is okay but Bo is just the friend. His story shows up, and then once you finish his story, you know, in his new town, once you develop the new town, Bo kind of exists as the friend, you know. Um, next up is Sten. And Sten is a monkey dude from Highfort. And a lot is not known about Sten, except that he's a coward. He joins the party... Out in the middle of nowhere, I believe in later in Windia, and then later on his story shows up as he deserted a war that was going on at Highfort. He comes back, his old war buddy is pissed off and shit, people have taken over, you have to subtly take over that situation before things go south. And it turns out Sten was a war hero, and his power is he can like go across cliffs if you've seen the whip from secret of mana that can whip and grab stuff think of that except that's his arm extending out and grabbing things it's a it's an interesting thing very agile again kind of strong thiefish kind of vibe next guy is jean and jean is weird um <laughs> jean is like i don't i think this is a put on he puts on this like weird French accent. He's from Semaphore. I think he's the only one that does this. He puts on a French accent. I don't think anybody else does. Not his sister, not his father, not anybody else in Semaphore. It's a bunch of frog people. And his power is he can, you know, turn into a giant frog and bounce in the overworld and go past trees and other obstacles and stuff, which is good for kind of mid early in the game to avoid combats and stuff. But Jean, like very bulky, 
you know, being a giant frog guy, but he's very dopey. He's almost like Big the Cat level dopey. That's the best way I would describe it. But he's kind of in that Winnie the Pooh, like nothing bothers him sort of way. And he's always trying to be happy despite, you know, being oblivious. The best way I would describe it is completely oblivious to actual workings of actual people. Because he's just trying to live his life as a whatever. Turns out he's actually in Breath of Fire 3 as a as a side character. The part with Balio and Sunder. That's technically him, you know, underneath the bridge living with his new family. You know, he's a painter. So it, it was kind of neat that he was brought back in a nice little reference. He was known as Ikarl, I believe, or Ekaru in the in the Japanese version. But John is just kind of dopey and whatever. His position gets usurped because he's missing and an idiot. And you got to take over and stop it. That's where you actually find the other thief. She tries to sneak into SEMA Fort and you bring him back. And that's how Bo's thing ends. But Jean is fine there. I don't use him that much. I Again, I like Kat. I like Nina. And I like one character later. There's another character known as Spar. This one is cool. Uh, Spar, if you remember De- uh, Peko from 3. Similar vibe. It's... A grass person, kind of druidic, like made of leaves, made of trees. I don't know how to describe it. Spar is made of trees, made of leaves, just leaf person, you know, and is there to help, you know, a circus. He's stuck in a circus and you break him out and whatever and he joins the party. The cool thing about Spar is he can change into multiple things with what's known as the shaman system. So, throughout the game in your new town that you're building, you have this set of characters you can recruit known as shamans that have elemental skills. There's like blue ones, red ones, yellow ones, green ones, and they either impart new stats or actually change your characters. So, Spar can do the most changing. And in fact, the one I saw the most was turning into like a small mushroom sprite looking thing like a fairy sprite and it changed his gender too. And it would, you know, you could change it to do different things and different skill sets. So the shaman system, it's, it's some sort of customization. It's not as, um, all encompassing as the master system ended up becoming, you know, with skills and stuff, but the shaman system can change characters dramatically especially spar though on occasion you'd actually like later in the game you can actually change cat into a completely different style of character too um but you can also change their look too so nina could go from a a blue dress to a green one and different color wings and cool stuff like that so it's a it's an interesting system a secret character actually exists and this is my favorite character it's blue so if you do a little bit of a rigmarole, you can you can find a, a little cave system somewhere or a little valley, go in, meet some ghosts, and they say, Blue is missing, where happened? Blue was in the first game, and in the second, and the third, and the fourth. And in the second game, she manifests as a secret party member. So if you go back to the original city, well, 
you know, a third of the way or so into the game, you can actually recruit her as a secret party member. She's Nina, but on steroids. She joins the party like 10 levels ahead. She's got way more power. She's got a skill where she can like shed her skin and get her health back, you know, because snake lady. And did I mention that Dace is awesome in three and she's the one of the best characters and she's also in four and she's also one of the best characters. Did I mention I like her? So I always get her in my party. <laughs> so yes, uh, especially if you go to a, a Peninsula Power esque place called the Giant Island and you fight like gigantic monsters for high experience, you'll need her, and she wrecks face. So lots of good characters. Favorites are Cat, Nina, Rand to an extent, and then um, obviously Blue. Uh, she got tr- retranslated into Dace later, if you're wondering. But Blue and Dace are the same character. But those are the characters you go, and, and the story kind of goes from there. You get through the inner workings of the St. Eva situation, and it ends up becoming kind of basic. Hey, religion is bad. Here's why, you know. And then you follow those characters that are, the god has given us powers and whatnot. It's similar but different to the way 3 did it. It's more brainwashy kind of stuff rather than protecting and whatnot it's it's more siphoning i think the way they described it was siphoning energy to power the gods or something like that so the final boss or whatever it's kind of weird um but but yeah their role is to stop it and there are multiple endings which is kind of neat um, I don't think the game expressly tells you how to get the multiple endings, though, so it's a little wonky to try and get them. But it is a cool idea that you can end the game in different ways <coughs> based on stuff that you've done. Um, as far as the battle system goes, I've talked about the shaman stuff, um, talked about the field powers, other things, typical f- turn-based battles. Um, dragon powers manifest as unique skills in battle. They're just, hey, do tons of damage. Do tons of elemental damage. Go. You know, it's not as well uh, categorized and wonky as in 3 or 4. And in 4, it was mostly summoning damage and whatnot. But, uh, but yeah, pretty basic turn-based battles. I'll say that much. Um... But let's see, straightforward. Um, as far as negatives go, um, again, the religion is bad plot. You know, what I liked about three was the fact that you could kind of understand where the boss was coming from, the final boss, and what their machinations were, were more misguided rather than evil, and they were just paranoid. This one is more straightforward. You kind of know what's going on immediately, and it's just straightforward because Japan loves to do its evil plot. You know, evil church is evil plot, you know, duh. Um, so get ready for another one of those. Uh, early on until you get, like, traversals, like, you can get a whale that acts as your sea traversal rather than a ship and a boat and then later on you get a bird that can fly around everywhere until then like if you want to go back and see Bo you have to go back through the same mountain over and over and trek through the same like 
three to five minutes to get back to that town. It's really annoying. Um, it gets it gets old because you usually go there to get new party members or you get you know special items later on. You know you can buy stuff because as the town builds up, you get you know uh, shops, stat building, cooks, all that cool stuff, and it gets old having to keep traversing. Eventually, once you get the whale, it cuts down on that. But man, early on, it's just backtracking such a bitch. And it's a bitch because of the high encounter rate. Even by SNES or NES standards, this game is renowned as one that has a high encounter rate. And I am a person that hates random encounters. (laughs) So think of what that says. You have a bad encounter rate, and it's worse than normal. So, yeah, if you like fighting, if you like dungeon crawls, this is the game for you. But it can get exhausting after a while. I think it's pronounced because of the fact that they like every time the the game starts back up, the song itself starts back up. Later on, they developed a method to where the songs, you know, under normal circumstances, the songs don't restart and they go to where they were when they stopped. This one the song starts back up from the beginning so get used to that it is uh, so it's just an aggravation another aggravation is the translation um it's it's not great um some of the names some of the other things is a bit spotty um I've seen worse but at the same time it does leave a lot to be desired it's easy to follow. It's a better, like, written game than one was. One was just very bare bones and basic, like the the Fantasy Star games, but two still suffers from iffy translation. So bear that in mind if you go back and play it or you watch it, and it's a little rough around the edges. But you still have, you know, cool stuff at play. A lot of different characters to try with a lot of different skills. I know I have my favorites. Everybody has their own. Uh, Again, my favorite was Nina. And her story arc, when you get to it, it's nice. Because you really start to feel for the things that she goes through. It's kind of the same way like... I like Rydia and Celeste from the Final Fantasy games. The, the the Not the self-sacrificing people, but the people that have dealt with shit that was thrust upon them through no fault of their own, and they just try to make do. That sort of character has always kind of resonated with me because they're not lashing out at the world. They're just trying to make do with the shit hand they were dealt but they're not being broody or annoying about it. They're making do. And I like that kind of character. Nina's the same way. She's still a nice woman trying to be an upstanding citizen, an upstanding, you know, adventurer, despite the fact that under every circumstance, she should be pissed off, you know? So seeing what she goes through at the beginning and the end of her story arc is really good. And that's what I would remember about this game and come back to because for all the faults I had with her in three in two there's so much going on that changes the dynamic it's a different character Nina is a different character in all of the games so I'm ranking them based on what happens to them and trust me in two 
she's the best, you know. And you have other characters that go through their own arcs, too. So if you're not as big a fan of Nina, you might, you know, go towards Cat or Stan or Spar or Bo, you know. But they all go through something. And that's what I remember is it's a it's got a mature sense. It's not trying to be very goofy and outside of some spots. And I would definitely recommend trying to find it. If you have an old school SNES or, you know, you have copies of it somewhere. I don't know. That's the problem with Capcom's treatment of the franchise is they don't have these games anywhere else. They're, they just kind of exist in the ether now, which is really disappointing. I wish they would bring it back and remaster it or, you know, touch it up or things like that. Because I would play Breath of Fire 3 again if it was on a modern console. The only way I can access it now is my old PS1 stuff. I have to dig out my PS3 and play it that way. You know, Breath of Fire 1, Breath of Fire 2, fuck, I don't know, you know. So someday I hope they touch this franchise again because it's very good and it's very underrated. And I think it's a shame that it's not... A, I mean, it is well known to people who have played these games and love them, but as far as, like, stream of consciousness and people remembering them, nah, no. I wish it would get the Star Ocean, you know, treatment that this new Star Ocean game got. Bring this stuff back, you know, and we would play them. So would I recommend finding Breath of Fire 2 and playing it? Yes. It's rough around the edges and the dungeon crawl aspect is a little exhausting, but you still will get a good game out of it. And I really liked it. But that'll do for today. And let's see what's on the docket here. We've got... Rumbling Hearts, Donkey Kong Country 2, Lupin the Third, The Woman Called Fujiko Mine, Rogue Galaxy, Tenchi Muyo and Universe, and a little bit of Tokyo. I'm just talking about that too. What the fuck? And Final Fantasy V. So I'm a busy, busy, busy guy for the next couple of months. But that'll do it for me, and I'll see you guys next time. Citizen Strive, signing off.